Let's go ahead and get started. It's a little bit of a different class today. We're jumping in the middle of our treatment of Romans 7, 14 through 20. And if you remember, I spent the entire last class dealing with the issue of was Paul speaking as a believer in this text about his experience as a believer or was he speaking as an unbeliever? And I opted, you remember, for... I walked through all the evidence for both sides of that debate and talked about how there are good scholars, evangelical Orthodox scholars on either side of that issue. But I ultimately landed on, in fact, if we go back here, I landed on the fact that I think there are strengths and weaknesses to both views. But in the end, I think that Paul is speaking of his experience as a believer in this text because I think that's a less problematic view than to take the view that he's speaking as an unbeliever. And so you can kind of see in the blue there just a summary of my view. I think he's speaking of his experience as a believer in this text, but I recognize there are some significant difficulties with that. There are some things you've got to recognize, or reckon with if you take that view. So today we're going to actually walk through the whole text of, well, we're going to walk through the text, but we're going to do it in a little bit of a different way than normal. I'm going to kind of summarize the argument of the text because there's so much repetition throughout this these verses where he repeats certain things over and over again so I'm going to sort of clump verses together and that have things in common and show you the ba- what I think is the basic point of the text and then we'll look at a few applications and then we'll tackle a related issue to our study in Romans at the end which actually someone else brought up. Carlton Shrum brought it up a long time ago. Asked if I would deal with it. I don't see Carlton today. So I heeded that, and we're going to deal with one related issue at the end, which I'll tell you at the end what it is, or I'll tell you after we're done with Romans 7. But let's start with a word of prayer and commit our time to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, our time this morning of corporate worship, beginning now as we've gathered to study your word in this sort of classroom context. We thank you for this dynamic where we can have interaction and talk about your word together and think deeply about what it means. And we thank you that your word is clear, clear enough that we can understand what it says. But we also thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, to give us understanding, because we are hindered by both our corruption and our human frailty. So we pray for the Spirit's illumination of your word this morning so that we could understand it and accept it in our hearts. And we pray that this passage in Romans 7 in particular, that you would use this passage to impress upon us the truths that would be very helpful and comforting and challenging to us. And we pray all of this for our good and also for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Okay, so why don't we start with having someone read Romans seven fourteen through uh, the end of the chapter. Romans seven fourteen through the end of the chapter. Would someone be willing to do that? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. All the way through the end. (laughs) So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. All right. Okay. So, we've read the text. Let me just give you a summary here. Again, I think Paul is speaking here as a believer of his experience as a Christian. And what he's doing is he's affirming that the law is good, and that he desires to obey it in his heart, right? And I'm adding that little parenthetical mark in his regenerate heart, because I think that that's where this does, this affirmation of the goodness of the law and this desire to obey it from the heart, that's where it comes from, right? It's from the Holy Spirit. Paul goes to great lengths in the next chapter to say the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, right? So if Paul is saying, I delight in the law, I want to do the law in my heart, then that's coming from the regenerating work of the Spirit to bring him from death to life, right? So I think he's affirming the law as good. He's talking about his desire to obey the law in his regenerate heart. But he's also recognizing that he is unable to, to do so, unable to obey the law. And I write here perfectly, right? Because if he is talking about his experience as the believer, as a believer, he's certainly not saying that he can't obey the law at all, right? That would contradict things that he had already said in the previous part of the book, especially in the early part of Romans 6, where he talks about, you know, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive, alive from the dead, right? So Paul certainly understands that we can obey God as believers, but I think what he's saying here is that he would love to obey the law all the time, perfectly, but he, he finds that he cannot do it, right? That's what I think he would be describing here, which... Is that an experience that you can relate to, right? Absolutely. And and then I think what he's doing is he's explaining why. He talks about his flesh, right? He's saying sin is still in his flesh. In other words, he still has a sinful nature. And his sinful nature hates the law and desires to break the law. And so really he's talking here about in this passage about this internal conflict that he experiences as a believer between his regenerate heart, which he identifies with himself, right? I delight in the law, in my inward man. And why does he do that? Because 
That part of him which is regenerate, that part of him which is a new creation, that is now his fundamental identity. That is who he is in Christ. Whereas his flesh, right, his sinful nature, that part of him which is not yet redeemed, is who he was in Adam, right? So you see that he identifies with that desire to obey the law. That's who he is. That's him. But his flesh, sin still remains in his flesh, his old man. And according to the flesh, there is desires, a hatred of the law and an inability to keep the law. And so I think this is the experience that he's describing here in summary. And let's just, what I want to do is I want to, I want to break this down in its part. So first, Paul affirms the law is good and desires to obey it in his heart. That is, in his regenerate heart as a believer. And you can see this throughout in verse 15. He talks about that he wants, I want to obey the law. I hate to disobey. You see that in verse 15 where he says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not, I do, not do what I want, but the very thing Uh, But I do the very thing I hate. What does he want? Well, he's going to talk about that. He agrees with the law. He delights in the law. What does he want? He wants to obey the law. What does he hate? He hates not obeying the law, right? I think so there's this wanting and this hatred. And then the same thing in verse 16. I do not want. What does he not want to do? He doesn't want to disobey the law. You see that in verse 16, right? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, right? So he doesn't want to disobey the law. Verse 16, he talks about, I agree with the law. Verse 18, he says, I have the desire to do what is right. Verse 19, I want the good. I do not want the evil. So we see that in verse 19, if you look there, for I do not do the good I want, But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. In his heart, he wants to do good. He does not want to do evil. Verse 21, he talks about how I want to do right. Right? You see that there in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He wants to do what's right. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Right? So... In all of these places throughout this text, you can see Paul affirms the law is good and expresses his desire to obey it in his heart. He uses the pronoun I. I delight in this. I I want to obey. I have a desire to do what's right. I agree with the law that it's good. I don't want to disobey the law. I hate disobeying the law. I don't want to do evil. So this is the first part. As a believer, Paul affirms the law as good. And desires to obey it in his heart. That is, in his regenerate heart. That's the first part. Second, sin continues to dwell in Paul's flesh. What does he mean by the flesh? You might call it his sinful nature. That part of his nature which has not yet been renewed by the regenerating work of the Spirit. Alright, so he talks about this is really the last part of the summary here. He sin continues to dwell in his flesh. So you see this throughout the text, right? Talks about 
sin that dwells in me. Verse 17. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Verse 18. Now, it's it's interesting here because when he says this, you can see that he's making a distinction between him, you know, the I, I want to do what's right. I love God's law. But sin dwells in me. And then he clarifies, because he'd already said that he wants to obey God's law. So how, where is the sin? He says, sin, that is, in my flesh, right? So it's not as if Paul is talking of himself like Jekyll and Hyde, right? Where there's this other nature inside of him. No, he still owns it. He says, it's my flesh, right? Otherwise, he could say that I'm not responsible, right? But that's not what he's saying. He's saying... That there is part of him that is unredeemed, his flesh, and sin resides there. So that's why we talk about remaining sin, remaining corruption. And what we mean is that while we are a new creation in Christ and we desire to obey him, there is part of us that is not yet redeemed, and sin resides there and produces all manner of sinful thoughts and sinful desires, right? So this is why if I were to have you know, omniscience, and I saw everything that was in your mind and all the desires and all the thoughts that went through your mind, and you were to do the same with me every day, even just one day, or let's just say a period of one hour, it would be a highly embarrassing and shameful thing, wouldn't it? Because sin still dwells in us, that is in our flesh. And it's not just a little bad. It's really bad, right? Sin is very, very bad. And so the things that, it's ironic, the things that we look out at others and we say, oh, that is, I can't believe that person did that. If we were to look actually honestly within our own hearts, we'd see similar thoughts and desires that by God's grace, we don't act upon, right? Or allow it to come out of our, our mouths, but because of restraint, but it's there. And so this is what Paul's saying. And here again, verse 20, sin that dwells within me. Or when he wants to do what's right, verse 21, evil lies close at hand. Where? In his flesh, right? I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. So there it is. There's this internal war. I, in my regenerate heart, want to do what's right, but sin lies close at hand in my flesh. And it wages war against my mind. So you know how this is, right? You come home from a long day of work as a man and the kids are crazy. The house is messy. Dinner's not even anywhere. And you have this war that immediately starts going on, right? You are frustrated. You're angry. How come my wife has not um, had this place in greater order? And you want to judge her and you want to be angry about that and frustrated and you're tempted but on the other hand you know but you know i don't really know what is going on maybe there's something happened there and really at the end of the day i need to be patient how how patient is she with me right and how patient is god with me and you know this war right this war between the sin which remains in your flesh and the holy spirit and the fruits of the spirit and paul says walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh Sometimes we succeed in that, and we have a wonderful attitude uh, in that situation. 
And that's just me speaking as a husband, father, man. Uh, a, a, a wife could certainly lay out a scenario similar to that, right? Where she experiences the same type of battle. And at other times, you know, we go and stew in the back room and come out and like you know, pour our drink and maybe make a few snide comments, right? And we've given into the flesh. But this is the battle that he's talking about. I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind. And then he talks about the law of sin. The, and here I think what we're talking about law is in a principle, right? There's a principle of sin that dwells in, in his members. Okay, so here we have this part. You know, as a believer, Paul affirms the law is good. He desires to obey it in his regenerate heart. But sin continues to dwell in his flesh, that part of him which has not yet been redeemed. And we see that here. Okay, so we have these two, two parts. And then a third part is the ongoing presence of sin in Paul's flesh. And its desire to break the law rendered Paul unable to obey the law. Now, here's where I would want to add in the parenthetical mark perfectly, right? He's unable to keep the law like he desires, that is, perfectly, but rather he often commits sin instead, right? So you've got this war going on between sin which remains in your flesh and your regenerate heart where you delight in the law and want to obey it. There's this war. And he says, because of this war, I don't keep the law perfectly like I ought. But instead, I often sin. Pretty simple. So you see this in the flesh. You see this in the text. Verse 15, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do what I do not want. Verse 16. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. And again, I would want to qualify that. He's not saying, if he's speaking as an unbeliever, right, then you could say, well, what he's saying is, I, I'm in bondage to sin. But I don't think that's what he's saying here in this text. I think he's speaking as a believer, and he's just simply saying, I don't have the ability to just keep God's commands perfectly all the time, right? I want to do that, but I just can't. Uh, why? Because of the remaining presence of sin in my flesh. Here we see it again, verse 20, I do what I do not want. So he doesn't do what he wants, and he does what he doesn't want. And then he says, finally in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So, this language of making me captive, which you also see up in verse 14, where he says, I am a flesh sold under sin. That language of sold under sin, captive to the law of sin. There's a sense in which that rubs, that like, seems to be in tension with what he had been saying in, verse, in chapter 6 about how we are no longer slaves to sin, right? But I think he's talking about it in a different way here. He's not talking about the kind of slavery to sin that we, were, that we experienced when we were spiritually dead apart from Christ. There, that's what he describes later in verse 8 where he says, The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, 
We were entirely in bondage to sin. As Augustine used to say, we couldn't do what was right because we're spiritually dead, right? But here, I don't think that's what he's saying. This is not a spiritually dead man. This is a man who delights in the law and is inner man, right? This is a man who loves God's law, who wants to do what's right. He's been awakened. He's been brought from spiritual death to life. The captivity he's talking about here is the fact that, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's like, he's like um, a man who's alive now, but strapped to a dead body, <laughs> carrying it around all the time. Or maybe a more apt metaphor would be that he's alive, but part of his, he has limbs on his body that are dead. And he feels captive to that part, of, to his flesh. He feels captive to this remaining corruption. Now, that, that's what I think he means here. Captive to the law of sin that is in my members. I still have this flesh. It's that old man that I inherited from Adam. And he still remains. And I'm not completely free from him. And so he longs for the day when he will be. Right? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay, so I think that's what he's saying here. I'm just going to, I'm emphasizing one more point from this. The cause of this internal conflict uh, inside of Paul's heart, uh, or inside of Paul, is not the law, right? And the reason I emphasize this is because, do you remember the whole reason he got into this discussion in the first place? What was the reason he got into this whole discussion? Do you remember? If we look back, go back to verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. And then verse 13, he added another question. Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. You see, his whole, the whole reason he got into this discussion is anticipating that all of his talk about the law uh, stirring up sin in him and thereby killing him might make people think that the law is a bad thing, that the law does evil things. It killed me. And his point in this discussion is to say, no, 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 it's not the law's fault. And if you look at the text, you realize who's he putting the blame on or what is he putting the blame on? Not the law, sin, right? The, law, the fault is not the law. The fault is not even his regenerate heart. The fault is the sin that remains in him. And you can see that in verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 20, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He's focusing the blame in upon sin so that people would understand that the problem is not God's commands, right? In the context, the problem is not God's law. The law is holy and righteous and good. It shows us what's right. But the reason why the law ends up killing me is because sin remains in me, and sin hates the law, and sin wants to disobey the law. So the problem is not with God or his law, but with sin. 
And that's the source of this internal conflict. And so at the end, we have to remember that his whole point is to answer some of these potential objections to what he had been saying in Romans chapter 6 and the first part of Romans 7. That will keep the argument in its context, right? Now let's look at verse 24 and 25, the last two verses. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. All right. So just to summarize here, Paul ends the section with an evaluation and a summary of what he had said in verses 13 through 23. An evaluation and a summary. And the evaluation comes first. You see it first, right? In verses 24 and 25. So what's the bottom line of all of this? Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So on the one hand, Paul lamented this inner conflict that he experienced with sin that remained in his flesh. And that conflict made him long for final deliverance, which I think we can all resound with that. So every time you fail to, you know, love your wife as you ought or respect your husband as you ought or every time you fail in, you know, dealing with your children, every time you fail to be patient with your coworkers, you you fail in your resolution not to gossip or, or to be grateful to God. All of these failures make us say, "Ah, wretched man that I am, or woman, right? <laughs> Who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't wait to have this flesh where sin still resides to be taken away, right? Or fully redeemed. And then, verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul thanked God that he had granted him deliverance from sin through Jesus Christ. And I think, so this phrase here really anticipates Romans 8, right? Because what's he going to do in the next chapter? He's going to talk about there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death through Christ. He's going to talk about how in the flesh we can't please God. But now in the spirit, we are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live, right? So this is anticipating this sort of treatment of these issues that's going to continue and spill over into Romans 8. But, and and I think that he's thinking of this deliverance that Jesus gives us in both a now and a not yet sense. Because if you look at Romans 8, you see there's, he still describes a conflict, right? He says, He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, verse 9. But, and so there's been a fundamental change. But in the very sort of following text, he'll say, if you by the spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So there's been a fundamental change. You are no longer just in the flesh. You are in the spirit. The flesh remains, but you are in the spirit. And you now can put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. And yet, there's a groaning, right? A groaning that he talks about in the next part of Romans 8. For a time when you will 
be set free from corruption. In fact, all creation will be set free from its corruption. And now you groan, but you're awaiting that day when you're, there will be, he talks about the redemption of your bodies, right? The full redemption of your body. So what, what will be the event in which that occurs? Christ returns. Christ returns and? New heavens and new earth. And for us, that means resurrection, right? So resurrection. Um, that's when we will finally get rid of the flesh and every last vestige of sin. So I think when he talks about thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, he's thinking of the present change. We are, not, we are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. But he's also thinking of that future time when we'll be set free from the corruption that remains within us now. And then there's this summary. Last of all, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, his regenerate heart, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So Paul's regenerate mind willingly obeys Christ, but his old sinful nature still bent on disobeying God. Um, and by the way, I think that one of the reasons I think that this interpretation of Paul speaking of his experience as a believer, not as an unbeliever, although there's times when you'd be tempted to think, well, he can't be talking about his experience as a believer, sold under sin, captive to the law of sin. Is that true of us? Well, it's true of our flesh, right? But I think you can see the same thing. In, you remember these passages in Ephesians and Colossians where he talks about put off the old man, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put on the new man, created in the likeness of Christ, right? Well, it's the same type of thing, right? I serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so there's this battle, and we have to put off the old and put on the new. Or Galatians 5, again, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So I really think that this interpretation gels well with the way Paul describes our condition in other passages, like old man, new man. Okay, so with that being said, let me just ask, are there any questions about just this interpretation of uh, Romans seven fourteen through 25? Any questions you want to raise? Does it resonate with you, or are there things that you want to push back on or ask about? Yeah. So, you had mentioned that he doesn't follow the law perfectly. Mm-hmm. Right, you you kind of put perfectly in there. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you. Right. However, in the the original language, just how not knowing how the language works. Yeah. Is there an emphasis on that? Well, or is it just yeah. Simply the simple translation of "I don't follow the law the way I want" or whatever is, is just how it's. Yeah. Translated. It's how it's it's translated right. It just you know. I do not do the things that I want, right? Though I agree with the law, yet, what, how does he put it here? I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. So, like I said, this is part of the difficulty of this text. If you just take that verse out and you abstract it, you would think, well, he's saying, I can't obey God, right? Well, then he must be talking about him being as an unbeliever because in other parts of the text, he talks about how he can obey God, right? But And that's why I say, I think what he's saying, the way I understand what he's saying, is not that I can't obey God at all, but that I just can't do it 
perfectly. I, you know, like so. If in other words, the same way, if, if if any of us in this room said, "Okay, today is the day. I keep the law perfectly," right? Or, or even even in one moment, I am going to love my neighbor as myself. You want to do that, but you can't. Right, because of remaining. I think that's how. That's how I understand. Yeah, I think that's just the, well, the way Paul is speaking is how we all would speak. Right. Um, if someone says, "Are you good?" You go, "Well, no, but yeah. I'm not all bad, but like because God's at work." So I think he's just speaking how we would all speak of our own right. condition. Right. I agree. All I would under. I totally recognize that the language is difficult at some points. Right. But, but we all understand when, but, when I say I'm good, right. I'm not saying that I'm as good as God. Yeah. And I'm probably better than my dog. Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes yeah. I do. Sometimes not. <laughs> right. Right. This is why people love dogs. It's <laughs> right. It's also why cats are evil. Because they're proud and... Right, right, right. So, I mean, even, like I said, even one command, you could say, uh, you shall not commit adultery. And there's a sense in which you could say, I keep that command. But there's a sense in which you could say, I'm unable to keep that command. Because if you take it deep enough, you realize that none of us can keep that, even that one command in any instance, perfectly, right? And why? Because of our flesh, right? So I think... It's not only just throughout the course of a day, you know, but in any single moment. There's a sense in which the scriptures sometimes talk about us obeying God, and we can obey God, and we do keep his commands. But if you really got down to it, you could also say, but we don't keep his commands at any point perfectly, right? I love the story of the voyage of the John Cutter, and this always helps me with Romans 7 when Eustace turns into a dragon. Right. And he's flying around, and they finally figure out, oh, that's useless, and he can't do anything about it. And that mm-hmm. bracelet's around his wrist so tight, and the lion has to, Aslan has to tear that dragon suit off of him right. and wash him clean. And to me, that's a figure of conversion because we are given a new spirit, mm-hmm. and he's no longer a dragon. <laughs> But when he gets back to the ship as a human, he still struggles with, you know, his uselessness, you know. Right. <laughs> and, and I always love that picture of rege- right. regeneration, that we're no longer a dragon. We are a believer. God has given us his spirit. But we still have our useless inside us that we're, right. we're struggling with. Um, I think it was John Owen that used to talk about the flesh as like a terrorist inside your soul, right? <laughs> that the devil knows that he has an ally in your soul, right? When he goes to tempt you, he knows that your flesh is there and your flesh agrees with him, right? Those are all very vivid reminders. And, and you know, it's interesting that Adam and I were just talking about this tonight. Even, even with the most wicked person engaged with in the most wicked deeds can somehow convince himself that he's actually good, right? And not really all that bad. And But the Bible is very raw and real and talks about really how bad we are. And that actually isn't just to depress us, but in, in to, see, to help us to, to humble us, to show us our utter dependence upon Christ for forgiveness and to show us the glory of the cross where Christ took all this wretchedness 
the guilt and shame for it and the penalty for it. And then also, we're to recognize that there was a time when there was no spirit. We were just flesh, right? In other words, we were all sinful nature. I mean, in other words, we had no part of us that had been made alive and born again. And and that's when we really were unable to do anything good. Now, that doesn't mean that we couldn't do anything good in a relative sense, right? You know, like, Craig, you work in a hospital. There's unbelieving doctors who show compassion and heal someone, right? But for anything to be truly good, it must begin with an awakening before God, where all of a sudden you, you recognize that in order for this act to be good, I must do it in, from a posture of faith and from a desire to please God. Everything else is tainted right, by our rebellious condition. And that's where we were. But as believers now, we have been brought from death to life. We have new spiritual life so that we can say, I myself, according to my regenerate heart, I serve God, the law of God. But in my flesh, my flesh didn't, wasn't made better through regeneration. That's something that we have to come to grips with. Our flesh wasn't made better through regeneration. Our flesh is still as sleazy as it ever was, right? What was made better is that we were brought from death to life. But that's why some people say, as a Christian, how could I think that thought? How could I desire that desire? Well, because nothing's changed in terms of your flesh. It's still just as bad as it ever was, right? But what's changed is now you, you see that for what it is. You hate that, right? And you want to obey. And by the power of the Spirit, right, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. You don't always do it perfectly. You can't do it perfectly. But, but now there's been a, a change of heart. Right? So that's, hopefully this is helpful. Just a few applications here. So again, assuming my interpretation is correct, and Paul is speaking about his experience as a believer, then we can apply it in these ways. It provides us great comfort that Paul experienced the same inner conflict with the remaining sin that we do as Christians, right? That's a comfort. I'm sure he was more sanctified and spiritually mature than all of us in this room, but, but he still had the same common experience of remaining sin. It also helps us to understand that this this experience of inner conflict with remaining sin is normal. Now, when I say normal, I don't mean, oh, it's no big deal, or it's actually good. I don't mean that at all. I just mean it's typical. So that if any of you in this room have wretched thoughts and desires coming out of your flesh that you experience and you think, surely no one else is experiencing this. Wretched man that I am. You could say, oh, actually, Paul described that kind of experience. And every Christian in this room shares that experience. We all have remaining corruption. And, it's, and, our, and, and we can't be rid of it like we would, right? And so just know that everyone in this room experiences Romans 7, like Paul. There, of course, we're all at different places in our sanctification. 
And for some people, certain desires are more intense than others, or they take different forms, right? I use this example. Some people have um, desires for homosexuality. Some people have desires for transgenderism. But everyone has sexually immoral desires, right? The category of sexually immoral desires. It's just they take different form and to different degrees, depending on various factors. Some of it we can't explain, right? But we all know what that's like. That should help us to, A, be humbled ourselves, be compassionate, and also to recognize we're not in some different category. And then it encourages us that such an inner conflict with remaining sin is a sign that our hearts are regenerate. Why? Because a non-regenerate heart doesn't experience this kind of conflict, right? In other words, if you're still dead in sin, you're not saying, I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, right? I want to do what's right before God, but I just can't do it. You don't experience that if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, right? Oh, there might be a degree of religiosity and whatnot, but you don't have this kind of sincere desire to please God, but I just can't do it, right? And I know that that would need to be qualified in certain ways, but I think that this is a, a, a definitely an encouraging... That conflict, actually, you can see it as an encouragement. I have been born again. That's why I hate my sins so much, and I desire to obey God, even though I don't do it perfectly. Um, and then I think it teaches us that a regenerate heart will love God's law and desire to obey it. You know, sometimes in certain quarters of evangelicalism, there's sort of been a... We don't really have anything to do with God's law anymore. That's sort of Old Testament stuff. And we're New Testament believers. So God doesn't call us to keep the law anymore. And you say, well, what does God call us to? And you hear different answers, you know. Well, just to be led by the Spirit. Okay, well, what does the Spirit lead you to do? Well, you know, the first fruit of the Spirit is love, right? Ah, well, what is love? What does it mean to love? How do you know what love is? Well, actually, love is the summary of the law. What does love look like? Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, well, so I am to keep the law then. The Spirit does lead me to keep the law of God, right? Now, it doesn't mean we're under the old covenant law by way of covenant. We're under the new covenant. But the law still shows us what is right. It's still holy and just and true. There are commands in the Old Testament law that don't apply to us anymore, right? Now you can eat pig and shellfish. Thank goodness for that. Carnitas. Um, but but the, the moral commands of God's law still reveal to us what is right before God. And, and therefore God certainly isn't saying, hey, it's okay to commit adultery or okay to steal. Or No, they still show us. What's, they're still a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And a regenerate heart will say, oh, how I love your law, right? So, and then the lastly, it reminds us to hope for our full deliverance from sin, right? That we should be saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And then we can also say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, that he, he is, he has wrought a change in my soul and that's just a foretaste. There will come a day when every last vestige of sin will be removed from my life. And I hope that when you think about heaven, 
The first thing you think of is God. To be, to, to be in the fellowship with God. Perfect fellowship with God. But that this, right under that would be oh, no more sin to hinder that fellowship. That you're not thinking primarily of, oh, I'll get to see all the people that have died. I'll get to you know, live in the new creation. I wonder what that will be like. Those are all good things, but they should be underneath the primary thing, which is God. And underneath that, no more sin. Because you know, what, what makes our life miserable? Sin and its effects. To be freed from sin. Oh, that's the greatest, you know. So that I might have unhindered fellowship with God. And all the other stuff is gravy, right? All right. Any questions about this or any comments on some of these applications? Yeah. Probably. But it's not necessarily totally to the application, but the passage right. that I'm struggling with a little bit is like, I, I know I'm a sinner and that dwells in me. But in this passage, it talks about sin as a noun, not a verb. Mm-hmm. Like it's like a sci fi movie, like this yeah. coming in and this yeah. picking over the host, and the host is irresponsible for. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Yeah. That kind of language, right? How do we deal with that? Like, I know I am responsible, but it talks about it like it's this right. or a separate entity thing. It is difficult. Um, I, I think, especially when you interpret Paul in light, I mean, when you interpret this chapter in light of Paul's broader teaching, I do think that he... He wants to emphasize, like in in Ephesians 4, for instance, he talks about the old man or the old self is how it's translated. But literally it's anthropos, which means man, the old man and the new man. Put off the old man, put on the new. And what is the old man? It's who you were in Adam. So it's related to this sort of covenantal reality of you were born in Adam and then you were you became united to Christ, right? Now and and I so I think he he's concerned with identity here. I think that's the main that's how I interpret. It. He's concerned with identity. He wants you to think of yourself as in Christ now and no longer in Adam. So the reason he he talks about it's no longer I who do it is because he's he's thinking about who he is in Christ and his regenerate heart right and he's saying sin's not coming from there right he wants to make that decision it's coming from who i was in adam which is no longer my fundamental identity now there's another sense in which he calls it my flesh right so he owns it so you can't say well that just wasn't me you know you can't take the you know defense of insanity defense and say what Look, it wasn't me. I don't know. You know, I I took this potion and I became Jekyll, right? And I wasn't even, no. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, right? When he sins, he knows it's, he's responsible for it. But I think it's the identity factor. It's, it's, he wants to make a distinction between his fundamental identity now is in Christ. And he identifies with the new man. And what is sinful is part of what, as part of this ugly inheritance that he had from Adam, this sinful nature. Now, in terms of sin being described as like an entity, right? I I understand. I thought about that a little bit. I I don't think that he's, 
I think he's doing that because sin, I think here is, this is my understanding of it, is sort of code for sinful nature, right? Is not talking about sin as some kind of infection or disease or little demon inside of you, but rather sometimes he he's talking about sin as a corruption that pervades his old nature, who he was in Adam. And he's talking about it in a sort of a detached way, I think, for the reasons I just described, because he wants to I he wants us as believers and this is how he looks at himself to recognize that you belong to the new creation. You belong to the age to come. You are in Christ, not in Adam anymore. But Adam's nature is still there, right? So I think that's the reason for the detachment. Not that he's detaching himself from responsibility for it, but rather that he's detaching himself from identifying with his flesh. And I think that's also where we have to be careful. The Bible doesn't say, I am a split personality, right? <laughs> the Bible says, I am in Christ, but my old man remains, right? And, and we're to put off the deeds of the old man, put on Christ. Does that help, or did you want to come back a little bit? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's just weird how the language is all about sin. Right. Sin and then a verb, like it seizes or it produces, you know. Right. It has its own right function. You know? Struggling with that, but that that's good. That is just And I actually think that part of the way that if you really get deep with what is sin, the old theologians used to have you know, deep discussions about what exactly is sin. Is it something positively or is it a lack of something? You know, in other words, is it an actual positive entity or is it a privation, right? A taking away of something. Is it, um, in other words, a corruption or is it like some kind of alien substance that came into me, right? And I think this is where we should recognize sin as not, not interpret this as thinking of sin as something, some entity of itself, but rather a corruption of our nature, right? And that's important theologically for various reasons I won't get into here, but I don't think we should interpret the language here as implying that. I think we should interpret it as just simply helping us under he, he saying like i identify with the new man you know so i don't know if that's helpful got in, maybe got into the weeds there a little bit but yeah paul uh along those lines i i love this verse right let's identify galatians 220 i've been crucified with christ right. no longer i who live but christ who lives in me in life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god for me. Right. Identifying with his flesh. It's Christ living in him. Right. It's all by faith. That, that we live. So there's there's a lot of hope there, even though we live we're stuck in this body. Right. And in fact, that language is very similar to just what he'd been talking about in the previous chapter, right? Where he talks about 
What are we to say then? Are we to continue to sin? Romans 6.1, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You say, how have we died to sin? Well, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If we were united to Christ as symbolized in our baptism, that means we shared in his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And then he describes how that pertains to the flesh. He says in uh, verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So he says, you know, we've, when we were united to Christ by faith, right? We shared in his death and resurrection. And that means that there was a change in our relationship to our sinful nature. It was brought to nothing. We died to our old sinful nature. And now we are alive in Christ. And you know, getting into all the details of what exactly that means is hard, but there's a sense in which he's calling us. In fact, this is why he goes on to say in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Is sin still there? Yes, in your flesh. But you're, don't, you're not under its dominion anymore. So don't act like you are. Don't say yes to sin. Don't let it rule over you, right? Say no to sin. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, live in accordance with this reality that you are now alive in Christ. If you just read that, you could think perfectionism. I should be able to always obey God, right? And this is where Romans 7 is actually important in providing a healthy balance to that, like, you know, our fundamental identity is we are in Christ and we're alive in him and we're not under the dominion of sin. But it's, as long as our sinful nature still remains, we can't actually always obey God perfectly like we would like to do, right? And that's where that now and not yet comes in. So there is, <laughs> Romans is a challenge. There is like... You could step back and say, you know what? The point's clear. But I also have to recognize there are difficulties with unpacking all of this and fitting it all together. I, I, it's not, I may have to, I have to wrestle through some of these things. So, yeah. Anyone else? Can I just? Yeah, Trish. I was thinking about, like, sin as a noun. And I think sometimes we, we simplify as educators too much that a noun is just a person, a place, or a thing. Right. <clears throat> Activity or an idea like love, right. and so I right. think probably sin in this passage is more of that kind of. Yeah, it's not a person or a place. It's not the boogeyman kind of right. thing, but it's this idea or this activity that right. we get caught up in. And it's the, so anyway. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Although I would want to say it's very important that we understand that sin is not just. So we could talk about sin at the level of our actions. We could talk about sin at the level of thoughts and desires. But we could also talk about sin at the level of corruption, natural corruption. 
And it's important that we recognize that the corruption itself is also sinful, right? So we are sinners, therefore we sin. Because if we lose sight of that, if we only relegate sin to action, I haven't sinned until I've acted, then in what sense could Paul say we are by nature children of wrath? In what say, sense could you say I was born in under God's judgment? Well, you can only say that if you recognize that the very state of your heart before God, even before you act, the fact that you are a sinner, right? By very nature, your nature is bent towards sin. And it's that too, right? Because this is where like the issue of homosexuality has come in. Some people have wanted to say the desires themselves or the orientation itself isn't wrong. And so I can call myself a gay Christian without it being a negative thing, right? Because the orientation, the bent, can't be sinful. Otherwise, I'm doomed, right? Uh, You would be saying who I am is somehow wrong. It's only if I act upon it, right? Or if I indulge it that it's sin. Ah, no, no, no. I have a nature that is bent upon lying and stealing and sexual lust and all of these things. And that in and of itself is wrong. I'm a sinner by nature. And then when I act upon it, that's also wrong. But it's both and. And it's not just people that struggle with homosexuality. They're in that category. It's all of us. We're all sinners by nature. And the very our very nature is corrupted. Now, that's a tough pill to... To swallow, I understand, but it's not just, you know, those who struggle with homosexual desires or have this unwanted sexual... You know what? I've got lots of unwanted desires and thoughts, and they just come naturally to me. And I was born that way. I never chose it. <laughs> How could that be? And that's where Romans 5, well, Adam sinned. He, was my, he acted on my behalf, and we've inherited his guilt and corruption... But this important that we recognize that sin in that sense is both an action, but also it's a corruption of nature, right? And there's moral culpability for sin at all those levels. And so sin that dwells in me, my sinful nature itself, he might be talking about when he talks about sin dwells in me, in my flesh, my flesh is corrupted by sin. So, I don't know if that helps. I think that's important. We're, we're a few minutes past here, so I'm going to turn. Uh, I'm going to turn things off at this point. But I do want to give you a hint. This is what I was going to jump into today, but I'm glad. I, I'll just spend the next time talking about this issue of we have Paul talking about justification by faith apart from works, and then we have James talking about. We are not justified by faith alone, but also by works. And you go, whoa, James, you know, it's not very Pauline, you know. And uh, so when we talk about Romans 1 through 7, one of the things that we should do is talk about how James fits. Because actually, it's uh, if you run into a savvy Roman Catholic apologist, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, you know, there is one place in the entire Bible that talks about faith alone. You know where it is? James chapter 2. And you know what it says? We are not justified by faith alone. And you go, and they say, did you know that? Well, I, you know, I, 
you know, a, a savvy Roman Catholic can t- tie, you know, innocent Protestants up in knots with that type of argumentation. But actually, what I'm going to show you is if you interpret James in its context and Paul in its context, they don't contradict at all. They fit together. And I want to show you that so that you can know how to uh, reconcile those seemingly contradictory passages. Okay, so that's what we'll tackle next week. Let me uh, close us in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together today. We love you and we thank you for your word and for the, the fact that sometimes just by explaining in the scriptures our experience, which in and of itself is not good, that we still struggle with remaining sin and our, it's at war with our hearts which have been regenerated, yet it is a comfort to know this, to know that we are not somehow strange when we experience this struggle, but that Paul himself described experiencing this struggle. We pray that this would be a comfort and a hope to us, but not an excuse to indulge the flesh. Even as Paul goes on to say, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And that we are to make no provision for the flesh with respect to its desires. And so we pray that you would um, comfort us with the fact that this struggle is not put us into a different category or mean that we're not Christians, but at the same time, that it would define for us the war, the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in, and that we might be motivated to walk by the Spirit and not indulge the desires of the flesh. And we also just thank you and we long for the day when Christ will, as is promised in Romans 8, come and finish the work he's begun in us. Mm -hmm complete the work of redemption through the redemption of our very bodies so that we will be raised body and soul freed from all the corruption of sin and to be able to enjoy full, free, unhindered fellowship with you as well as with one another. Oh God, we long for that day when all of when sin and all of its effects will be eradicated from your creation And all things will be made new. And the former things will have been forgotten. Help us to live with that hope. And that it would bring joy into our current struggle. To know that these things are just temporary. A vaporous interlude between now and the time when you will finish your work of redemption. So that we might not lose heart. But might continue to persevere. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us hope and give us joy even now uh, with that comforting knowledge. And we pray these things, Father, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.